This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal advice. The transmission of information on this podcast is not intended to establish and receipt of such information does not establish or constitute an attorney-client relationship. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements. Welcome to another episode of Talking Pop Health. I'm Eric Tower, an attorney with Thompson Coburn, and today I'm excited to welcome Dave Morlock from Kane Brothers. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Kane Brothers is one of the preeminent um, advisory services. I, you know, I particularly look uh, to them for uh, strategic advice. So, and it's a personal interest of mine. I'm I'm quite excited to have Dave on. And before we uh, plunge in, why don't you give a little bit about your background? Sure. Uh, first off, thanks for uh, thanks for having me, Eric. I appreciate it very much. Um, so, I'm a managing director at Kane Brothers. Uh, been with the firm for about six years now. Uh, actually, it was a longtime client of Kane Brothers before I joined the firm. Now, we, we don't make a habit of recruiting uh, our clients. It just sort of opportunistically uh, worked out that way. I, I run the firm's uh, health system M&A, an advisory practice uh, across the country. You know, my background before joining Kane Brothers, I was the CEO at the University of Toledo Medical Center. Before that, the CFO at the University of Michigan Health System. So, you know, a couple of decades in C-suite, not-for-profit healthcare. So, you know, it's pretty helpful for me as I'm advising clients because I have actually, you know, lived the consequences, both intended and unintended, of, of putting, uh, you know, affiliation deals and changing control deals together. So... Uh, I've sort of been there on the other side of the table, uh, if you will. Uh, you know, Kane Brothers, I appreciate you talking about our, um, our preeminence in, in the industry. Uh, we've been around for about 40 years, formed by Jim and Dan Kane, the Kane Brothers. All we do is healthcare. Uh, I would describe it as healthcare writ large. So it's not just uh, providers, physician groups, health systems, hospitals, but, you know, also uh, med tech. Uh, healthcare services, managed care, healthcare IT, and that kind of thing. So we, uh, but it's all healthcare all the time. Um, uh, significant focus in the not-for-profit healthcare uh, arena, but also very significant focus in the private equity-backed uh, space. Uh, and there's a lot of activity in healthcare uh, in in the PE land right now, for sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's interesting. So when you when you read all these publications that are coming out, or yep. you listen to the radio, healthcare is is obviously hot right now. Yep. Um, I was reading a pitch book piece today about direct primary care, where people can pay a set fee and yep. you know get as many primary care services as they yep. want. Uh, very interesting little area. Um, but when I look at health systems, you know, right now. I, I hear such different things. Um, some view themselves as staring at the edge of an abyss. Yep. Some view themselves as, well, I can keep this going for the foreseeable future. Um, some say, hey, this is an opportunity, this, this time period for me to grow and get bigger. At the same time, we've got COVID that has, has decimated uh, parts of the industry. Yep. Um, we've got service site neutrality staring us in the face and the, and the loss of hospital volumes. Yep. Um, new entrants, you know, uh, remote patient monitoring, telehealth. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's been a lot of, around Amazon. 
We've got Walmart, Walgreens. We've got the direct primary care. You know, growth of Medicare Advantage. That's a big. That's a big thing too. Yeah, big piece of this. So where where do you see big picture before we dive in? um, Where do you see things for for the systems right now? So if if you sort of look at a crystal ball out over the next ten years or so, so keep in mind, most folks overestimate the amount of impact the change is going to have in the next year or two, but they also tend to way underestimate the impact of the change over the course of 10 to 15 years. And as I try to look forward for health systems, we've been talking about value-based care and pop health for, I don't know, a decade, at least, Eric, in this, in our industry. Yeah, right. 2010. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been a slow move. It's a market by market move. Some markets, um, it's it's really significant. In other markets, it's still sort of wild west fee for service. Uh, I I was talking to an executive recently that said Pop Health um, is a solution that's looking for a problem to solve. Okay, so I could I could point that guy to some markets where the problem is there. I think that the growth of Medicare Advantage will slowly move us to the tipping point where the business model shifts from fee-for-service to value-based care. Um, Medicare Advantage has different penetration in different markets, but if you just sort of look over the next decade, it's going to continue to grow. And I, I actually think that Medicare Advantage will be to American healthcare what the shift from old-fashioned pension plans to 401k plans was to retirement savings in America. So if you think back a couple of decades, you move from this um, uncost-constrained defined benefit to cap contributions, and there's a defined contribution piece Gave some more power and flexibility to the consumer, if you will, the employee. Uh, in this case, it'll be the patient, whether they're a Medicare Advantage enrollee or an enrollee under an employer plan. It's going to cap the expenditures eventually over time uh, and the growth of expenditure in American healthcare. What I think health systems sometimes miss is that their revenue is society's cost of healthcare. So if healthcare is it's getting close to 20% of the GDP, 55% of that spend is on hospitals and doctors. Now, I'm not going to I'm not trying to pass a value judgment on whether it should be a larger percentage or a smaller percentage. My point is if healthcare is too expensive and you're trying to constrain the growth of the expense, you just what's the old saying? Just follow the money, right? You're going to look at that 55% and say I've got to constrain the revenue and value-based care is one of the ways that's going to happen. Certainly started. And, and yeah. um, maybe we should touch briefly on service site neutrality and how that's going to um, potentially impact. Us. Yeah. You know, it, I am 10 years removed from being a health system CFO. And I, I was baffled back then around the notion of, you know, we're going to pay you this much, if we do the knee replacement in this venue, as opposed to pay you this much, if we do the knee replacement in that venue, point to another industry where we do that kind of thing. It makes no sense from a consumer perspective. 
That's just nuts. Site neutrality, in my view, is long overdue. And if a health system is not positioned to compete under the rubric of site neutrality, shame on you, right? Shame on you, frankly. So how do you answer a healthcare executive who says, fine, you know, I lose all my ortho volume. Yep. I've lost, you know, a lot of my elective surgeries. Um, you know, the cost of hospital space is, is far higher than ASC. Mm-hmm. And frankly, you know, I'm of the opinion that many of these services could even migrate to an office setting. Yeah. Um, or home setting. Or a home setting. Right. And we're seeing more of that. Right. You know, how do you, how do you answer them as far as I'm going to have this empty set of bricks uh, with a large debt and a large staff that I need ready for something like COVID, you know, where, how do they answer this or how do they respond to it? Yeah. So let me, let me touch on the COVID piece first, because, you know, there's an old expression, you, you, you shouldn't build the church for Easter Sunday. That's the one Sunday when the church is absolutely packed. While our system was very strained under COVID, particularly in certain markets, I don't think that the idea of we're going to prop up an expensive fixed cost solution to a once a century situation, that, that's just economically unsustainable. You've got to have, you know, a, you've got to have a flexible, swift moving way to adjust for the ability to take care of patients in a, in a situation like flu pandemic or COVID or something like that. You know, you can't just build a system and say, I've got all the brick and mortar, I've got all the respirators, I've got all the, you know, all of those things, and they're just going to sit unused because, you know, in the next 70 years, something like this is going to happen. You just can't do it. A lot of uh, systems have responded and and they would say, well, we've been getting ready for this. We've been buying primary care practices. We've been opening urgent care centers. You know, would you say they're ready? Or or how would you tell them they need to get ready? In my view, it's all about scale. And it's all about scale in covered lives and attributed lives. So historically, in the hospital and health system business, scale has been about I'm accumulating dots on a map. I'm accumulating beds, hospital buildings. It allows me to run my supply chain a little cheaper, squeeze an extra point or two out of my rev cycle. There's nothing wrong with running the back office more efficiently because you're spreading the fixed cost. But that's not the scale move for the future for health systems. It's about having attributed and covered lives and providing um, primary care at scale to those lives. So on paper, it seems like the move toward acquiring primary care practices, um, opening urgent care centers, et cetera, feels like a move in the right direction. But there's a mindset around managing the care of the patient that is critical. So if, you're, if your view is, I'm going to go into urgent care because that's my front door that brings me patients to fill my hospital, fill my ORs, uh, fill my imaging suites, you're missing the boat. So that, that's still the fee-for-service mindset. And I think value-based care is going to turn that uh, on its head. So, for example, you read the papers, HCA acquired a set of urgent care centers down in Florida. How would you assess that? 
HCA might be special cause variation here, right? So number one, they operate hospitals at a scale that is unprecedented around the country. There's, there are other big players, but HCA is particularly good at it. They're great operators. They do a fantastic job of making sure that when they go into a market, that they can be the leader in the market, right? So there's none of this, we're going into Chicago and happy to be in seventh place. That's not part of the HCA playbook. So they are actually bringing scale and trying to be the nexus of care in in those communities. And they're very disciplined about it. So they're, they get out of markets where they can't be that nexus of care, or they go into markets and invest brick and mortar and where they can be the nexus of care. So I'm going to kind of set HCA aside. That's really different than if you are a $600 million, two hospital system, or even a two to $3 billion system, because um, you are not operating like HCA. I've never seen a not-for-profit system that operates as efficiently as HCA in that regard. It's a different animal. So as, as part of the difference, maybe, you know, HCA is at least prepared to take attribution. Um, you redirect people out of your ED to a lower cost setting, hence the urgent care center. Frankly, you, you pocket the, the cap dollar. Yeah. Um, you know, while keeping the people healthy and providing localized care keeps everyone happy. Yeah. So. I, yes. I, generally speaking, yes, that's correct. So think about investment markets because those are forward looking things. Where do I think things are in the future? If you look at the at HCA's valuation, their market cap relative to their revenue, and then you compare that market cap to some of the Medicare Advantage primary care businesses that are cropping up uh, around the country. Um, it's a massive difference the way the investment markets value those value-based care companies as opposed to the way they uh, value you know, the traditional fee-for-service hospital company. So even HCA, maybe in the long run, is mispositioned. But because of their operating skill and leverage and their scale, they've got a, you know, a reasonably long runway to solve the issue. Now, think about somebody like Tenet, right? So Tenet was you know, a massive hospital operator, and it, it is clear they are on a shift to we're going to be an ambulatory care company. We're not, you know, they're moving from hospitals to ambulatory care. In fact, I think they have shifted so that ASCs now drive a larger portion of their revenue than the hospital. Tenant has had, you know, many lives. I remember them yes. when they were psych hospitals. So, yeah, no, no, I got you. I got you. <laughs> right. Um, but but it, maybe HCA and Tenant are bad examples. If I'm, if I'm at St. Elsewhere. Yep. And I pick up the phone and I say, hey, Dave. Anybody listening has to be at least as old as me and Eric to know what St. Elsewhere is, but okay. <laughs> I'm dating myself throughout this conversation. Um, you know, I, I pick up the phone and say, hey, Dave, um, you know, I've got this system here. Um, you know, how do I get ready for Medicare Advantage? How do I, what, what steps do I have to take? We've got some primary care practices you know, maybe we've got another system, you know, oh, gee, our system uses Epic, theirs uses Cerner. Yeah. You know, the physicians are on, I don't know, all scripts. Yeah. What do we have to do to get ready? Yeah. And then how do we position ourselves to be able to take CAP? There's a few ways. So there are some 
strong Medicare Advantage players, physician groups on a, a you know multi-market stage. If you think about like the the Chen Meds and the Keno Healths and Oak Streets and and folks like that, if you as a health system are actually able to deliver Medicare Advantage lives to organizations like that, then there's the ability to create a partnership with with those folks where they're making money at scale on those risk-based lives. It may take some of your activity out of your hospital. If you're in the right kind of market, let's say you're in a growing market like Atlanta, Dallas, somewhere like that. What that functionally does is actually creates incremental capacity for you to deal with the growth in the fee-for-service piece of your business in that growing market. Now, it's a different kettle of fish if you are in the type of market that is quite stagnant or even worse, shrinking, because it's a bit of a race to the bottom then. Um, That being said, if you don't figure out a way to disintermediate yourself with partnerships in Medicare Advantage with primary care, your own physicians taking uh, Medicare Advantage patients in their primary care practices and then managing the care, um, you know, it's going to be a tough, it's going to be tough sledding over the next 15 years. So I, I've worked in some of those markets and with, with some of the players, yep. um, you know, one observation has been, at least in my experience prior to this, mm-hmm. uh, you move into some of these markets and, and the local systems are hostile. Any thoughts on the meaning of that or, or how um, things head? Listen, I understand why you can view that kind of change as the enemy and you could be hostile. Uh, I'll, I'll remind you that, you know, 20 years ago, Sony sued all kinds of artists for basically disintermediating Sony and publishing their music online. Um, now, look where the Internet has gone over that 20 years, what it's done to whether it's it's music broadcast print. That's another industry where this kind of disintermediation has happened over the course of the last 20 to 30 years, the incumbent legacy players were hostile to the change, um, both in business practice as well as pursuit in court. That's not a long-term strategy. It's, just, it's You may be stiff-arming people as you're trying to you know run through the line of scrimmage, but you're going to get tackled eventually. So, you know, this is interesting because I had not um... – heard much out of the health systems wanting to actually partner with, yeah. you know, I, I assume your reference to uh, some of the primary care providers, the MA, you know, you're looking yep. at private equity yep. there yep. Uh, typically, or else maybe some of the insurers, yeah. uh, which are now starting to play around in this. Um, you know, do you think there's really a willingness at this point on the part of the systems to do this, or are you a voice in the wilderness? You know, so I don't think we're a voice in the wilderness, Uh, I actually think we're a voice of reason uh, in this regard. There's sort of a continuum of receptivity to the idea. So we we certainly are working with uh, some client systems who are, I don't know what the right phrase is, enlightened, I guess, enlightened for where things are going 
and trying to figure out, you know, and asking us to help put together, you know, put together the right kind of partnerships. And we've got other clients who are just like, we really like our fee-for-service world. And we don't see that changing in the course of the next fill in the blank, three years, five years. So we're going to sit tight. The, the critical point is, in my view, that waiting until you're on a burning platform means you've waited too long. You lose your leverage in, in any of the negotiations around putting partnerships together um, if you wait too long to move. So there's, you know, it's more art than science, Eric, around when's the precise moment to move. But if you are in a spot where you've, you know, waited till the water's sloshing over the edge of the boat, you're afraid your boat's going to sink, you've given up your leverage. So how do you address the notion, you know, a lot of hospitals, they'll, they'll look at their primary service area, their secondary service area, and they're going to say, we want to control everything in this geography. Mm-hmm. Um, they tend to be very reluctant to pursue, you know, ventures with a significant other party yeah. in that geography because of a fear that, that you know, they're going to be beholden to that entity. They're fine typically on a smaller scale with um, sort of a diffuse band of physicians or that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But a significant partnership, they're always going to worry about, well, what if they go the other way? Uh, my partner does. How do you work through that with them? First off, you got to put your toes in the water and do some of these partnerships. And I think you will eventually see that your ability to be flexible and enter into the partnerships, some of them might not work out. Some of them may, you know, the the driver for getting into a partnership may change over the course of a number of years and it's you unwind and move in a, in a different direction. Um, but that kind of flexibility is going to be a critical hallmark of success as opposed to I'm in absolute control of everything. Um, so, so think about it like this. this. This is an example. We do a number of partnership deals for clients in the home health and hospice space. Okay, So clients that started their own home health agencies, their own hospice agencies, they refer their patients into those into those businesses, et cetera. It's an important part of the continuum of care. The question is, can you actually run that business as well as somebody whose job it is to wake up every day and run that kind of a business? You know, the biggest fear we see is somebody saying, look, if I if I sign up for a partnership with a private equity backed home care agency, it's just like it's it's all about I'm just going to drive profits. I'm not going to provide good care. The quality goes down, et cetera. In virtually every deal we've worked on in this space, the partner that we brought in has stronger quality and safety performance than the legacy business that went into the partnership. A system that can develop a variety of partnerships, a Medicare Advantage primary care partnership, home health and hospice, urgent cares, ASCs. I think are, they're much better positioned for the future than I'm in control and I've got to control. You're, you're just going to, that's not going to work going forward. Yeah, I, I have to admit, I've seen a lot of hospitals or health systems, they're willing to cede control on the ASCs, the home health. That, 
I, I think one of the things I've definitely heard is, well, we understand physicians, so we can run physician groups. We'll just do it ourselves. How would you answer that? Every physician group I've talked to expresses significant fear to me of the health system running their practice. And it's, it's generally along the theme of the last thing I need is some hospital administrator screwing up my practice. Okay. So while those health system executives may feel like we can run those practices, even it, these are even physician led health systems, right? I'm not just talking about health systems run by, you know, people that came up through the CFO rank or the, the, the human resources track. I'm talking about physician led organizations. Um, the, the vast majority of physician groups do not believe the health system can run their practice as efficiently. Um, the other thing that the health systems need to keep in mind in this space is most health systems that I work with who have significant physician group practices um, struggle to make money in the practice itself. Right. They, many of them lose money and they look at it and say, well, well, they create, you know, downstream revenue activity, that kind of thing. There are plenty of physician practices who are managing lives at scale who who make who make positive margins. Right. That's this is why you see CVS and Walgreens and Walmart heading into this direction, because managing primary care and multi-specialty practices at scale, you should be making money, not just relying on the downstream. I guess the last thing I would point out is if the physician groups in this particular space are, you know, looking to monetize their, you know, they've built businesses. A, a physician, a, a physician group is a business, it's a business with a soul, right? But it's still a business. If they've built up a practice in a business that has economic value and they're seeking to get paid for that economic value, it's really hard for a health system with stark laws and things like that to, to create the economics that private equity can create uh, or that, that, you know, Humana and United and Optum and those folks can create. So are you, are you really saying right now that health systems, they need to transform? They need to focus on what they're good at and and kind of get out of the other piece because, um, you know, I, I'd have to say that's somewhat of an isolated uh, voice in the wilderness at this point. In time. Well, I, I think what they need to do is. So think about it like this. A health system should think of themselves as a platform uh, and that they are conveners. Right. And and bringing together the partnerships the physician partnerships, the home health partnerships. Shoot, there's even some health systems that are doing this with back office pieces, right? It's I shouldn't be running my rev cycle. These people over here should run my rev cycle because they do it at scale and they do it better than I can. You know, think about the apps on your iPhone, right? Apple doesn't control all of those apps. They don't create all of those apps. They've created a platform, a valuable platform, but it's a platform uh, to to bring together the the partnerships. Does that make sense? No, that's uh, <laughs> I, I really sort of like that. Okay. Um, you know, it it does make a lot of sense. It's interesting because it's 
a real transformation in how I think having been in health systems like you, I mean, you know, I never viewed the system um, the way you're describing it. Right. It's a slow moving industry. It is an industry that is, I don't know what the right phrase is, politically fraught, maybe. But I have heard that every congressional district in America has at least one hospital in it. Now, I don't know if that's right, but it seems plausible to me, or almost everyone. And in those communities, the hospital or the health system is, if they're not the biggest employer, they're one of the biggest employers. So when you start to mess with the rice bowl, right, and the business model of those large employers, people start to scream, access to care goes away for the elderly, for the poor, and jobs are going to go away. Now, if you are a politician, it's hard to run on harming the poor, harming the elderly, and jobs killing, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. So um, it turns into a, it turns into a messy battle in on the political front, and you know, Twitter and social media and 140 characters to get your message out and that kind of thing makes it even even messier. So there are forces on the other side that definitely push against push against change for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing I can say about most hospitals is they are a physical embodiment of the pride of their community, even more so than employers. And, you know, one way to get a deal done oftentimes is to make a commitment to expand that hospital, whether or not you really believe, you know, that that helps. Right. Um, It's just we're a bigger hospital. now. Right. Right. So I see, you know, in, in some of those just like hospital to hospital merger deals, you know, sometimes those capital commitments, um, and it's changed over time, five to seven years ago, many of those deals were, we will come build you a new bed tower, we're gonna, you know, we'll blow out the ER suite, and build you a whole new ER, etc. Now it's a bit more aimed toward we will ensure that we'll make the capital investments to, you know, kind of keep the place going. But that's different than we're going to build you a whole new bed tower. This gets back to my comment a few minutes ago about um, making a move before you're in such dire straits that you have to make a move, right? Because if you're now in a spot where you have to make a move, you've got no leverage to lean into. If somebody's going to acquire you, uh, you know, of course they're going to put in you know, capital, make sure the chillers and the boilers don't fail because the whole place closes without chillers and boilers. But that's not strategic. (laughs) Well, I've seen plenty of deals where the idea is we're going to transform this hospital. We're going to shut it down and turn it to an ambulatory campus. Um, And I've seen plenty where the commitment now isn't we're building you a new bed tower. It's we're going to sink X dollars into our ambulatory platform and that kind of thing. you know, that's a little more fraught, I think, for a number of reasons, because it can be very hard to to quantify um, how you're allocating that. If I'm building a bed tower, yeah, you know, I'm I'm going to have yeah. certain expenses that are easily trackable and identified yeah. with that bed tower. Yeah. So I guess I would say this. We so first and foremost, when we're advising clients, hospital clients 
on a change of control transaction where they're, you know, they're looking for a partner to acquire them. You, you, you've got to start with cultural alignment and cultural fit. Okay. That's, that's in my view, that's actually more important than the absolute economics, right? So if you are, if you're picking up an extra 20 million bucks in capital commitments, but you're doing it with somebody whose culture is so unaligned with your own culture, you're going to rue the day that you pick the extra 20 million bucks, right? You got to, you got to, it's a marriage. My mother used to say, if you marry for money, you're going to end up earning every penny of it. You got to start with the cultural pieces. <clears throat> so as it then fits into the ambulatory discussion, that really means how does, how do you fit into the market, the overall market picture, right? So especially if you are being acquired by somebody in a contiguous geography, right? The next town over or two towns over. Because you and I have been in healthcare a long time. You've heard the phrase healthcare is local. Healthcare is not local anymore. The business of healthcare is not local. I don't know how many times I've said that to boards in small town hospitals. The business of healthcare is no longer local, it's regional. So you gotta, you've got to be asking in these negotiations how do we fit into the regional picture? And the ambulatory discussion is really manifests itself in that regional discussion. So if you're advising a board on a, on a partnership, for example, you know, the play isn't just save our hospital today. It's we need to prep for care along the continuum. We need geographic coverage. We need to grab these attributed lives. Yep. Um, and we need to make sure we have a good cultural fit. And we've got to be able to recruit physicians. That well, too. Yeah. <laughs> Easier in some places than others. Fair enough. Um, but that's an interesting concept. You know, I, I definitely have heard that bandied about in some transactions, but in many, that's that's sort of an afterthought. I mean, if you have a prestigious partner, mm -hmm. it can help you recruit. Um, yeah, fair enough. Although, you know, there are there are there's definitely differences in the mid-sized health system world in terms of talent in recruiting, ability to recruit. I, um, uh, you know, we, we did a recent transaction with an organization in central Pennsylvania called Penn Highlands, right? So if you look at their track record and their ability to recruit physicians, they're headquartered in Dubois, Pennsylvania, which is a lovely community. But it's Dubois, Pennsylvania, right? You're not going to hop in the car and see an off-Broadway show or go to a major, major league sporting event um, out of Dubois very easily. But they have a they do a fantastic job at recruiting physicians. Um, so there there are differences in in partners potential partners' ability to uh, in their track records in recruiting physicians, for sure. When when you're advising the health systems, yep. I mean one of the things. Um, I never used to worry about going back a number of years, um, but but always seems to be front of mind now. Is going to be the the IT issues and data. Um, if you're really going to do value based care, yep. uh, you, you really need to have the ability to do data analytics, yep. scrape from a number of different sites. Yep. You know, um, how are you advising? systems who are, who are kind of staring at that, especially they're already capital constrained now. 
Yeah. So look, you're making a great point. You've got to be able to not just scrape data from a number of sites, but from a number of systems. Okay. So um, I've been in as a health system executive when we, you know, implemented major electronic medical record changes. Those are, that's a big deal to make that move. I think one of the unfortunate things that health systems ultimately realize is after, after, you know, potentially hundreds of millions of dollars of investment, you're not done. Right. And it doesn't capture the whole, it doesn't capture the whole picture. Um, and, you know, may not provide you the ability, for example, to manage care at full risk patients like Medicare Advantage. Um, so this gets back to the partnership pieces because partners can bring IT capabilities, artificial intelligence, analytics, and that kind of thing to the table that doesn't require your, you know, writing a capital check. Well, let's turn to another piece of the continuum. If, if we're talking about partners, um, maybe we could call them frenemies, the payers. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the payers have a lot of, well, they they have some data capabilities. Yeah. Um, oftentimes not as much as they sort of claim to right. as far as directing care or right. providing care. Or as um, much as they're willing to share, but yes. Well, and, <laughs> and that's one of the things I wanted to talk about. Um, they're moving into, you know, buying physician practices. Yeah. Uh, we could all look at Optum slash United. Kaiser has been around forever. Yeah. Um, you know, some of the blues yeah. plans. Yeah. I mean, United is the largest health insurance company in America, and it's the largest physician group in America. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if I'm a health system, you know, I need them, I want them, but I'm also a little scared. Um, yeah. You know, how do yeah. you, how do you approach this? Especially in my experience, some of them do great stuff like, well, we're not going to get around to fully adjudicating your claims for three years. It's sort of a black box. If I'm at risk for care and I'm not getting, you know, real time data and it's three years old, you know, I'm not able to course correct. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. a real problem. So it, it is, you know, the, the, the problem varies by markets and types of markets, right? So um, if you are in a suburban environment or a smaller, small-ish market, smaller town environment, and I don't mean small rural communities, but, you know, towns like Toledo and Wichita, you know, decent you know, towns we've heard of, but they're not what you would call a big city. Um, the health system, I think, can still be positioned as the nexus of care in those communities. OK, if you are in very big, competitive urban markets, it, the, especially big urban markets that are not growing or even shrinking, um, it's it's it, it's a bit more competitive and a bit more scary because, you know, those payers acquiring physicians coupled with the private equity folks acquiring physicians, coupled with the CVSs, Walgreens, Walmarts, et cetera, kind of pushing into the delivery of patient care. Their entire goal is simply disintermediating the health system. And I worry about um, where those hospitals are positioned because you will end up with big buildings that 
start to empty out. And that what there's at least one scenario that would suggest that, I don't know, 25 years from now, hospitals are going to feel like sniffs feel right now. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Which is, which is a real estate, they're, you know, big sniff transactions. Now they're just real estate transactions. When you get right down to it, it's just real estate. Yeah. I've done those. Yes. Um, yeah. And then, uh, so, you know, in this, in this next, uh, area sort of touches a personal note for me because I grew up in a really small rural community in rural Michigan. One hospital in the whole county, you know, 60 beds. My mom actually worked at that hospital for 40 years. And I really worry about rural health care and at the same time, urban um healthcare in urban settings that are have a hallmark of poor social determinants of health right the south side of chicago a, a, as an example um and what's the model look like for those folks and i actually think ultimately there's hopefully there's probably a different funding mechanism out of washington to 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 permit them to survive. Well, it's funny you would go there because that's actually a conversation I've never had on this podcast, but I've had with, with a number of people because it doesn't seem like there's an answer the way things are done now. Um, You're going to lose a lot of volumes. You're going to have a lot of excess capacity. Um, And if you're in a, in a socially disadvantaged area, um, you got to keep the service. Otherwise, you're going to get out migration. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things I know people wrestle with is, hey, I've got this beautiful academic medical center. Um, there's no health care in, in my community. I'm going to go there. And all of a sudden you start having a ripple effect yep. of people who are socially disadvantaged, uninsured, chronic care, who could be cared for um, locally at a much lower cost they're going into the academic medical center and frankly, some of the people who are there, you know, are, are less than receptive of having yeah. uh, the halls over overwhelmed yep. with all these people. Yep. Um, it's, it's a real dilemma. Yeah. And, and look, the models, you know, what drives the profitability and let, let's be clear the you know, big AMCs, any health system ultimately has got to drive some profitability to you know, make capital investment. This isn't about taking care of shareholders, but it is, you know, reinvesting in the in the mission, reinvesting in the organization, um, access to capital, and, and some of those critical things. Um, because the services that many of those folks need in the socioeconomically strained environments, whether it's a really difficult urban neighborhoods or whether it is you know isolated rural neighborhoods are not the things that drive profits in American healthcare in the fee-for-service model, right? The last thing that the, that the hospital in my hometown needs is two more orthopedic surgeons, right? That town doesn't need more knees replaced. What that town needs is primary care, behavioral health services, addiction care, um, social work, things things that wrestle with the the 
the, the safety net issues that, that that community faces. And, you know, that is very ripe for, you know, a value-based care kind of model. So I, I think it's the state of Pennsylvania that has a model called the Pennsylvania Rural Health Model. Um, and it, you know, it applies to smaller isolated communities and hospitals that creates a, what, a, what amounts to a value-based care capitated um, environment that permits those hospitals the ability to invest in the things the community needs as opposed to the things that traditionally are profitable in a fee-for-service environment so that we can kind of keep the doors open. Now, unfortunately, that model sort of started to take hold right before the pandemic hit. Right. So when you're in a pandemic and, you know, you got to shut the door from elective surgeries and it, it sort of messed with what is the, what is the actual care delivered and what does the data look like? Because if you're going to put a model like that in place, one of the things you've got to do is compare cost of care and outcomes before and after. Well, if you put it in place right before a pandemic, well, pan, the pandemic messes with the the with the data if you will so you know i suppose the jury's still out but the the concept of that model i think makes a lot of sense whether we would go that way in a you know at a national level i don't know i don't know that's a great segue let's one last question for you sure. I, I want you to look into your crystal ball mm -hmm. um and and what does the future hold at this point where do you see things going so uh, I, I, I do. I'm a big believer that we will move to uh, value-based care. We will move away from the fee-for-service uh, environment. It's going to be a. It's still going to be a long slog. It's going to be a market-by-market -market move, and it's going to kind of have this element of sort of um, what's the phrase? A tipping point, right? Where it feels like I'm good with fee-for-service, fee-for-service, fee-for-service. Boom. And it's going to quickly move within a market to to value-based care. So you've health systems have got to be positioned, uh, as we like to describe them, you've got to have a Medicare Advantage model that works in both a fee-for-service environment as well as a capitated value-based care environment. Now, I use the phrase Medicare Advantage model because I think Medicare Advantage is sort of the the catalyst here, but it applies to commercial populations. It applies to Medicaid. It, it applies to other populations, but you've got to be able to, you better be making money on a fee for service uh, way at Medicare rates. If not make money, you got to break even, right? Cause the notion of, I'm just going to lose money on my government paid business and I'm gonna make it up on my commercial paid business. That model isn't going to last. I mean, it just, it just isn't going to last. Um, and then you've got to be in a position to manage the care um, at scale um, in a capitated environment, because I think that's where we're going. One last thing. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I guess it was in the last election cycle, um, Senators Warren and Sanders, you know, were pushing really hard on the concept of Medicare for all. Right. And that's sort of it's sort of lost steam at the national level. But I do see over the course of time, say the next 10 years, 
the concept of Medicare Advantage, if not available to all, available to many more, and perhaps most, right, as, as an option that is out there uh, for folks. So I, I think that's going to contribute to the, to the Medicare Advantage tipping point. I want to just pick on one thing. You mentioned yeah. this, this notion of um, this tipping point where all of a sudden things are going to go. Would, would you predict with that that there will be a lot of systems that will fail or collapse as part of that? Or yeah. do you see um, you know, a lot of people making it through um, just with a little pain? So I think we're going to see uh, an increase in hospital bankruptcy for sure over the course of the next decade. And it's not just going to be those standalone little independents, one hospital in a county out in wherever, rural Tennessee, rural Texas, rural Michigan, wherever you want to point. Um, it, it's going to be, it's going to be um, uh, broader based than that. So, yeah, I think, I think we're going to see a reckoning for sure. Wow. Well, on that note, um, <laughs> let's wrap up. Thanks.